Now today, I want to begin with a story of a guy named Matt Emmons. Now you might have never heard of Matt Emmons, but he actually had one of the biggest Olympic blunders in all of Olympic history. And it happened in 2004. You, you probably haven't heard of him because he was a marksman. He was a rifleman, a, sh a shooter. So unless you're like really knee deep into that sport, you probably don't really hear about, you know, what people do in that sport. But going into 2004, he was one of the greatest uh, shooters, one of the greatest marksmen of his generation. He had a bunch of articles written about him, and this was going to be his first Olympics. He had the previous years has been winning almost every competition he entered. He was so good, in fact, that he won the 50 meter, he won the gold in the 50 meter prone rifle with a gun he borrowed from his teammate because somebody messed with his own rifle. So again, I'm sure they're super particular. His was messed up before the event. So he used somebody else's and won gold. Two days later, he was in the final stage of the three position final, which is basically the best overall shooter competition. You have a competition where you're laying down, then one when you're on your knees, and then one where you're standing up. It's kind of like the end all be all of the shooting competitions. He was so far ahead in scoring that on the last round, all he had to do was hit the target which means that it was over because for these people, you would only miss a bullseye by millimeters and that's kind of considered an off shot. It's kind of like, I'm trying to think of like, what's a, uh, something we could relate to. Best thing I could come up with, like, you know how when you were a kid and you were bumping with, the, when you were bowlers with, bowlers, bowling with the bumper things? Like imagine three rounds in a row, which is like six rounds of bowling. Like it is possible to hit no pins with the bumpers, but it's like, really, really hard. Like your ball has to like, like right in this like one crevice. Like imagine bowling three times in a row and hitting not a single pin. Like that's just not going to happen if you have bumpers. So he's, it's over. He's lining up to shoot. He shoots, he hits a bullseye, but he was aiming at the wrong target. Therefore he got zero points for his shot. He went from blowing out the competition to gold to all the way to eighth place. He didn't medal. In the rifle world, this was an absolute massive deal. Well, what's interesting is that in the 2008 Olympics, it's supposed to be his redemption story, which is second Olympics, uh, something similar happened. He was winning again, going into the final round, not by as much, but it was still pretty much over. All he had to do was pre pretty much hit a, a simple shot for someone like him. This time, however, when he was lining up his shot, he accidentally hit the tar trigger and missed the target again and didn't hit gold in the all around. So here's the deal. There's times in your life where you might be embarrassed. Maybe someone caught you picking your nose. Maybe you fell as you were walking and you kind of fell in public. That's, it. That's embarrassing. But for Matt Emmons, he was humiliated. Right? He wasn't just embarrassed. I mean, especially if you're in this world, everybody saw what you did. You should have won gold. You're absolutely humiliated for what he did. And, and I share that story because today, as we continue our time in Genesis, here's the question we're looking at. How should we view our own humiliation? Like, if you think about the things you've done in your life, I bet there's things in your life that you said or you did. Like, even when you think about it now, you cringe. Like, you, you want to go up into a hole and, like, hide from everybody, right? And so you think about that. Maybe you think of some of the decisions you've made, some of the sins that you've committed, some of the wrongs that you've done in your life. How should we view our own failings, our own shortcomings, our own sins, especially in light of God and who he is? How should we view our own humiliation in our own lives? That's the question we're looking at this morning. And so if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 41? Genesis 41. We're getting close to the end of Genesis, so congratulations for those that have been around for most of it. Um, today, we're continuing the story of Joseph. You have Abraham, who God calls out and says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You have Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and then Jacob has a bunch of sons, one of which is Joseph. Every generation, every generation has failed that God has called. Joseph is the first one who's actually an honorable guy. Well, we saw last week that he gets sold into slavery, 
But then he, and then he rises in the rank to Potiphar, who, who, who is a slave owner. He gets falsely accused of trying to rape his wife, you know, even though his wife was the one trying to sleep with him. So he gets thrown into prison. Then he interprets these guys' dreams. He says, God, my God, Yahweh is going to tell you what your dreams mean. His interpretations come to fruition. And one of the guys who, said, who he tells, you're going to be restored into your, uh, your high, the high kingly court that you're a part of, Pharaoh's court. And, and so this guy gets restored. And yet he doesn't tell Pharaoh about Joseph. And Joseph stays in prison. So you have a high character guy honoring God in everything he does. And bad thing after bad thing after bad thing happens to him. And so we're going to pick up this story. He's still in prison. Genesis chapter 41, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. At the end of two years, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing beside the Nile. So two years means two years since our last incident. So he's been in, in, in Egypt. He's been in Egypt for 13 years at this point. Now, we're not exactly sure how much of it was slavery and how much of it was in prison, but he's going to be in there for 13 years at this point. Uh, it's been two years since he last interpreted the, the, the cupbearer and the chief baker's dreams. And so he's been in prison for at least over two years at this point. It's a terrible place to be. I mean, it's a dungeon. Again, no AC. You probably eat. Uh, your, your diet is terrible. You're hot all the time. You he ain't never taken a bath. I mean, it's not a good place to be. He's been there for a while. And then Pharaoh one day has a dream. Verse two, here's Pharaoh's dream. Uh, when seven healthy looking, well-fed cows came up from the Nile and began to graze among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, sickly and thin, came up from the Nile and stood beside the cows along the bank of the Nile. Verse four, the sickly thin cows ate the healthy, uh, healthy well-fed cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Seven heads of grain, plump and good, came up from one stalk. After them, seven heads of grain, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven plump full ones. Then Pharaoh woke up and it was only a dream. So here's the Dylan Cliff Note versions of the dream. Basically, you have uh, these zombie cows eating the healthy cows, and you have these zombie crops eating the healthy crops. That's what he dreams, okay? It's the Walking Dead cow edition. Verse 8, when morning came, he was troubled. So he summoned all the magicians in, of Egypt and its, all its wise men. Pharaoh told him his dreams, but none could interpret them for him. Now, there, this happens sometimes, like when Daniel's in Babylon. Like, there are these times where these rulers summon people to interpret their dreams, and nobody does it. And sometimes they're gonna, he's going to, like, kill everybody. And I'm like, why doesn't somebody just make it up? Like, that's what I'm thinking. Maybe it's because they would be killed themselves if, you know, if they, if they say something's going to happen and it doesn't. But I don't know. For whatever reason, nobody can figure it out, and nobody's even trying to fake it until they make it. Like, they're just like, we have no idea what your dreams mean. It's also helpful for us to know as modern readers that in the ancient world, dreams were a very big deal. Many people thought that the gods uh, communicated to you through your dreams. And so uh, we, actually have, uh, we actually have many ancient documents with dream interpretation, like with certain symbols meaning these things. Uh, so even with all their practices of trying to interpret dreams, nobody can really figure out what's going on. But then this happens, verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, this is the one that uh, Joseph interpreted his dream in the last chapter. Today, I remember my faults. Pharaoh was angry with his servants and he put me and the chief cupbearer in the custody of the captain of the guards. He and I had dreams on the same night. Each dream had its own meaning. Now a young Hebrew, a slave of the captain of the guards was with us there. We told him our dreams. He interpreted our dreams for us and each had its own interpretation. It turned out just the way he interpreted for us. I was restored to my position and the other man was hanged. 
So, so when the, when the, uh, when the cupbearer goes to Pharaoh and he says, remember my faults, what he's saying there is that he was wrong not to mention Joseph before. Of course, it wronged Joseph, but it actually also wronged Pharaoh because Pharaoh should know if there's a dream interpreter who apparently can interpret dreams and he's always right. So it was wrong of him not to go out of his way to tell Pharaoh about Joseph. So he says, hey, there's a man who apparently can uh, interpret dreams for you. Maybe you should ask him. He might be able to figure out what's going on. Verse 14, then Pharaoh sent for Joseph and they quickly brought him from the dungeon. He shaved, changed his clothes and went to Pharaoh. So again, Joseph goes from these terrible living conditions. I mean, again, who knows the last time he bathed, his beard probably looked all sorts of a mess. Uh, so they, they wash him, they grab him quickly, they give him a haircut, they probably put some nice clothes on him, they make him smell uh, really good. It's like, again, extreme makeover, Pharaoh edition. And then he gets taken out of the dungeon or the pit rather quickly, and he's brought to Pharaoh. So that's what happens. Now again, I just want us to remember where Joseph is before we continue. Right? If you remember, when he was a young man, he was given a coat of special authority from his father, which basically meant even though he was the 11th oldest of, of, of Jacob's 12 sons, he was the one that oversaw the rest of his sons, and they were jealous of him. Right? He, then he has dreams that all of his family is going to one day bow down to him, in other words, and, and that he would rule. So, so he's thinking, God has a wonderful plan for my life. This is what teenage Joseph certainly would have thought. But then what happens? But then his brothers sell him into slavery, and then they tell their father Joseph was killed and attacked by an animal to kind of cover up what they did. He then goes to Egypt, does a great job as a slave under Potiphar, and rises in rank under his household. And then his uh, slave owner's wife, Potiphar's wife, uh, tries to sleep with Joseph multiple times over. He refuses every time. We talked about how big of a deal that would have been in the ancient world last week. And so Potiphar's wife lies about Joseph and gets Joseph thrown into prison, where again, he was trusted by the prison guard. He rose in the rank of the prisons uh, under the prison warden and helped kind of oversee the prison as a prisoner, which again, it's, it's a cool, like he has responsibility. It's still a terrible place to be as a slave prisoner in prison. And then he, ha he has the cupbearer, the chief baker, they interpret these dreams for Joseph, or Joseph interprets their dreams. Uh, and then he tells the cupbearer, hey, don't forget about me. And then he does forget about him. And then he stays in prison two more years. So again, we read these stories quickly. Joseph has been enslaved and then in prison for 13 years. I mean, can you imagine that? 13 years. And so it's just important for us to know that there is no world, there's not a single world in Joseph's mind where Joseph thought what was about to happen to him could have actually happened. Especially not after he has these dreams and he assumes God's going to make him a ruler and then bad thing after bad thing after bad thing happens to him. He certainly probably thought, especially after he had these dreams, like he's got this coat of authority and these dreams that his family's going to bow down to him. He, he probably assumed that if God's going to promise this to me, then it's going to lead me down a path that's going to go really well. Like it's probably going to be a good path from A to B. Maybe there'll be a few bumps in the road, but like here's where I am and I'm going to end up up here and it's going to be awesome. He probably assumes but my trajectory in life is going to be great. There's not a world where he could have imagined what was going to happen to him. And yet here's what we see, especially as we'll see today and in the next couple of weeks, what's going to happen to Joseph because of the path that he took. One of the things this text shows us is this, that the pits are part of the promise. So Joseph is thrown into a pit by his brothers, right, when he was sold into slavery, and then he's thrown into the pit by Potiphar, 
right? Again, if you know the Joseph story and you know where this Joseph story is going to lead and you know it's about going to happen, if not, you're going to find out here soon. But, but you, you know that Joseph is going to be exalted in a way much bigger than he absolutely ever could have imagined when he was younger. Like he might assume, like, I'm going to run my family. My family's wealthy. We're like a big family. Like, I'm going to have a lot of responsibility. And yet what ends up happening to Joseph is not only is he going to rule, but he is going to hold the highest position someone like him could hold in the ancient world. Because uh, he never could be Pharaoh, but, but someone who, who could be Pharaoh. He's going to hold the highest position with the most authority someone like him could hold in the ancient world in the most powerful nation in all of humanity up until this point. And absolutely none of it could have happened if he first hadn't gone through not one, not two, but multiple pits, right? The pits were part of his promise. And one of the things we think about in churchianity, I'll say that instead of Christianity, because these are kind of the things we assume about God. Like in churchianity, we kind of assume that God's will will be easy. It'll be pain-free, that there's not going to be any hardship, and that I'm going to have perfect peace. Like when he's leading me in a direction, like I'm just going to know, I'm going to have the warm and fuzzies, and it's going to be great, and then what happens is that if it's not, if things don't go according to plan or the, the, the tra tra trajectory uh, you thought they were going to go down, you think either God lied to me, I misunderstood him, or I have done something wrong to mess up. Like I've messed up the plan and so I'm in here because either God lied to me, I didn't understand him correctly, or I messed up. And yet when you read stories in scripture like this one, I, I would just submit to us something. I'm not trying to be like controversial for the sake of being controversial, but I would submit something that might make us uncomfortable. And that what this story actually shows us is that if you are experiencing difficulty in your life right now, it might actually be because of your faithfulness. It could be because of your faithfulness. Now, it also could be because you made a bad decision, right? So if you keep getting fired for a job and you keep showing up late and that's why you keep getting fired, it ain't the devil that's out to get you, it's you that's out to get you, okay? So like, you gotta have some wisdom here. Sometimes you make a dumb decision, dumb things happen, right? But also it could be that some difficulties you are experiencing right now are due to the fact and solely to the fact that you've decided to try to honor God with your life. That's what happened to Joseph here. Right? He's sold into slavery. Uh, Potiphar's wife wants to sleep with him. He refuses. So the re because he's trying to be faithful to Potiphar and to his God, he's now thrown into prison. Right? He, the only reason he is where he is is because he was faithful. That's the only reason. He's here. In fact, I would bet many of the most faithful decisions you have made, I know this is true of my life, have happened when, they, when they've been hard, um, it's been uncertain, that I haven't had a lot of peace, and often led to difficult or uncertain times. Right? So maybe there's times in your life where you decided to be financially generous towards a cause or towards a person or to something in need. Well, when you do that, that causes you to not have all the resources you can have. And so it makes your life a little bit less predictable, a little bit more uh, rocky, perhaps, if you have your own financial hardship. Right? Uh, maybe telling the truth and coming clean about a sin issue with your spouse or with a close friend. Like It could really wreck your life in the moment. Now, it's more than worth it in the end because you don't have to live under the, sh the sin and the shame that you've been walking in through all these years. But the, the, the time that you uh, say, I'm going to confess what I've been dealing with uh, internally, man, that's a hard place to be. Maybe you moved or you took a job where, that if, where if it was up to you, you would not have done it. But for, for whatever reason, you felt God leading you in this direction. And maybe you make a career change and you are up here in your current career. In your next career, you got to start from the bottom, right? There are many times where it is because of your faithfulness that you experience difficulty. 
And so I just think it's worth asking for us, especially knowing that, at least in this story, the pits were part of the promise of Joseph. It is worth asking, that is my frustration and anger with God because he didn't come through, or is it because I assumed things that he didn't actually say? Now hear me, sometimes it is because he hasn't come through yet. And, and that's okay. Sometimes we are angry with God because everything that we can see in the moment, it seems like it's wasted. It doesn't make sense. But there are other times where we get mad and angry with God for him not doing something that he never promised. Certainly Joseph would have had his own issues with God. Certainly Joseph could say, man, I had all these dreams that I was going to be ruling and now I've been enslaved and in prison for 13 years. There's no world that Joseph could have predicted what was going to happen to him. We see in his life, that the pits are part of the promise, and it could also be the same for us. And then if we continue, here's what it says next in verse 15. So uh, Joseph has quickly hurried into Pharaoh's presence. Verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. I am not able to, Joseph answered Pharaoh. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. In other words, and a lot of humility, just like it ain't me, but I can tell you who it is. It's my God, and he's going to tell me what your dream means so that I can interpret it for you. And so what happens next is Pharaoh tells him the same thing that we just read. The zombie cows ate the healthy cows. The zombie crops ate the healthy crops. And what's, what does this mean? And then verse 25, if you look down, verse 25, it says this. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God has reveal, revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And so what Joseph says is basically the seven good crops and the seven good cows represent seven years of plenty. So we're going to have about to have like the most grain, the most food. It's going to be a party for the next seven years. And then the seven zombie cows and the seven zombie, seven zombie crops represent seven years of extreme famine that are going to follow the seven years of plenty. It's going to be absolutely devastating to the land and the fat will be devoured by the lean. And then he explains to Pharaoh that if what Pharaoh should do is he should appoint someone uh, to set them over the land of Egypt and let this man be a, kind of like a head of the governing council, where what they should do is they should take a fifth of the harvest over the next seven years, so a fifth of everything everybody uh, raises, all the grain, all these things, they should take a fifth of that, they should set it aside, and then when the seven years of famine strike, they can then sell all this grain back to the people, and that's how you'll survive the famine. So here's what the dream means. Here's a plan that you should run and you should have someone oversee its development. Verse 37, if you look down to verse 37, here's what happens next. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And he said to them, can we find anyone like this, a man who has God's spirit in him? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. Verse 40, you will be over my house and all my people will obey your commands. Only I as king will be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, see, I am placing you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh removed his signet ring and he, from his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand and he clothed him with fine linen garments and he placed a gold chain around his necks. My boy was blinging. Verse 43, he had a Joseph ride in his second chariot and his servants called him out, called out before him, make way. So he placed him over the land of Egypt. So he's got 
all this gold, all this ice. He's driving a, a convertible Tesla so everyone can see, like, it's him. Like, he's the man. It's, he, is, he is him, right? He's him. And so uh, Pharaoh does all these things. He says, well, you seem wise. You seem discerning. I'm going to make you in charge of what's going to happen. In modern terms, it's helpful to understand what's happening here because I think this is a little bit confusing. Uh, essentially, Joseph is going to become one of Pharaoh's vice presidents. So think of like a Fortune 500 company. You have the CEO and then you have like the VP of marketing and sales and distribution. You have all these people leading all these other divisions. That's what Joseph is. Joseph is essentially in charge of taxing the Egyptians and then selling back to them their own grain during the famine. So he's one of uh, Pharaoh's kind of vice presidents of distribution for the famine. I don't know what his title would be. Um, and so what happens here is that Joseph is transformed from a Hebrew slave and a Hebrew prisoner to Egyptian royalty, not just in status, but also in appearance, as he says, like he's going to dress and look the part. And then Pharaoh says, you have all the authority to do whatever you need to do to make this plan take place. And again, notice how quickly, maybe not seem quick to us, it's quick to Joseph, 13 years of languishing in the pit. And within an hour, within two hours, his life is radically transformed. He goes from a lowly slave prisoner, the lowest he could be in that culture, to the absolutely highest position of honor someone like him could have in the entire world. Like it could not be better for, her, for him in terms of power and authority. Yet again, just remember, absolutely none of this could have happened had Joseph not experienced deep suffering that led him to this moment. In other words, one of the other things this text shows us is this, that the pits are part of the process. So not only when God promises things, we shouldn't assume it's going to be great, but we actually have to experience some of these things for God to lead us where he wants us to go. Again, literally, they had to happen for Joseph to get where he was going. There is no other way for Joseph to be a vice president in the land of Egypt had he, unless he went through this trajectory. He's a Hebrew. He's not an Egyptian. He doesn't even live in Egypt. And yet he is where he is because, not in spite of, but because God took him where he took him. And so what we see is not only should difficulties be assumed in God's promises or in God's leading, but they are often necessary to get us where God wants us to go. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that we enjoy them. It doesn't mean we have to look forward to them. But perhaps, perhaps we should ask ourselves when we read a story like this, what God might want us to learn from or experience here that will help us when he were for where he is taking us in the future. And here's the thing. You might have no idea. Like you might be in a season of life where you just have to be faithful and trust the Lord and just hope that his promises are true. You know, this makes me think of uh, Brian and Brittany, their story, they share people with this story. Brian and Brittany uh, helped plant the New City Church, and they were with us for the first five years. Uh, now they run a uh, foster and adoption and a kinship network called Second Home RDU, where they help foster parents with support. And, you know, Christina and I are new foster parents, and, like, the system is not helpful at all. They basically, like, try to, try to make you do all this work, and they give you the kids, and it's like, good luck. And so Brian and Brittany, for years, tried to have kids, couldn't have kids. And, and now, so they, 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 ended, they started fostering, they've adopted, and they fostered. At this point, they've actually fostered over 20 kids in their home in the years they've done it, which led them to lead this bad, like hugely, this huge need of a support network, especially in a county like Wake County, where you have all these people moving into, and you have such a big fostering crisis. So, so now they're starting an organization, literally impacting hundreds of parents, which through generations will probably be, I mean, I'm not trying to exaggerate, like tens of thousands of kids through the next like, three or four generations because of their work. Yet five years ago, when we were praying with them, when we were weeping with them that they might have children of their own, 
They, they never could have been there had they not experienced what they've been through. Now hear me, it doesn't mean you enjoy it. In fact, our stories can oftentimes be awful for us, even if they're good for other people. In other words, I feel like this is kind of like a gospel picture. Right? What the gospel was, what Jesus did for us was awful for him, but it was good for us. I even think of my story. Many of you guys know, when I was dad, my, when I was 19, I lost my dad to, to a suicide, right? And so there have been many a times in my life since then that I've been able to walk, agree with, and counsel people in horrific situations, particularly people who have experienced suicide on their own. And I would never be able to do that if my dad was still here. Now, here's the deal. I would rather trade that any day. I would, I would rather my dad be here and not be helpful. But that's not the story that I have. And so again, for us, there might be things that are hard and awful for you that are just a gospel picture of how God is going to use your pain for other people's good in the future. That's certainly what is happening to Joseph here. The pits, the awful, terrible, tragic, horrific, traumatic things Joseph is experiencing is going to allow it, he's going to go through that so that he can be a blessing to others. Even while he's in prison, he has no idea what God's doing. And that's where some of us might be today. That's where, that's where, that's where Joseph was. And then in verse 44, it says this, Pharaoh said to Joseph, so after uh, Pharaoh makes Joseph leader of all these things and dresses him up, he says, I am Pharaoh, and no one will be able to raise his hand or foot at all the land of Egypt without your permission. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephanath-Paneah and gave him a wife, Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Again, no idea if I pronounced that right, but fast and quick, and you think I know what I'm saying. So that's just the trick when you're reading names. So, so Pharaoh uh, grants Joseph all the authority he needs and then gives him an Egyptian name and it gives him an Egyptian wife. This would be part of the process of elevation and status and would help him integrate into the high priestly ruling class of Egyptian culture. His wife's name literally means she belongs to the goddess Neith. She belongs to Neith, to the goddess Neith. In other words, he marries a pagan woman, so not someone who worships Yahweh. Of course, he has no other options in Egypt, and so this is what has to happen. Um, and so he marries a woman who certainly knows nothing about his God, at least not right now. So he's, he's elevated, he's in the royal class, and he's going to start running the play of getting all the grain in Egypt. And then Joseph sets out, he starts collecting the grain. In fact, they says they ended up collecting so much grain, they stopped counting. Like they couldn't even count anymore. They just built all these storehouses, collecting all this grain. And in the meantime, Joseph also has two sons, one named Manasseh and one named Ephraim. Interestingly, he gives his sons Hebrew names, not Egyptian names, which has to be significant because what this is saying is that he clearly sees God as having a hand in his life. In fact, he says that if we were to read the verses that God has delivered him from his troubles. So even though he's integrated into Egyptian culture, he names his kids uh, Hebrew names after his culture and after his God. And he says all of his troubles have turned to good. And then verse 33, we'll read to the end of the chapter. Verse 33 then says this. Then the seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in every land, but in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. When the whole land of Egypt was stricken with famine, the people cried out to Pharaoh for food. Pharaoh told all of Egypt, go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. Now the famine had spread across the whole region. So Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold the grain to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Every land came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain for the famine was severe in every land. In other words, it wasn't just Egypt that was under famine, but even the surrounding areas as well. So seven good years, Joseph gets married. He has two kids. They're storing up all this grain. They can't count it. And then famine strike. 
The people go to Joseph. In other words, it's not that like everyone literally talked to Joseph, but they either talked to Joseph or those under Joseph who were like under his command for distribution because they had run out of food. And then all the nearby, nearby nations and peoples start coming to Egypt because they find out that there's grain there, which of course is going to set us up for what we read next week in the story. But for now, we also see the promise of blessing that accompanies the family of Abraham about how his, blessed, how his family is going to be a blessing to all those who are around him. We see it happening here with Joseph. He's not only blessing Egyptians, but he's blessing at least most of the known world, at least of these people at the time. Now, what's fascinating is that it is worth seeing the parallel, parallels here in this story to someone else in Scripture. And you see this all throughout Genesis, particularly all throughout the stories of Joseph. Because in Joseph, who we've been reading about, <clears throat> you have someone who, who was of high status. He was the most favored by his father. He was giving an, a, a coat of authority and prestige. And he goes from a position of honor and authority to a position of weakness and servitude. He then suffers unjustly, though he has done no wrong. And in Genesis 39, when he is thrown into prison for attempting to sleep with Potiphar's wife, though he didn't, the text doesn't give any mention of how Joseph defended himself. Now, he might have defended himself. He might not have said anything because maybe it wasn't appropriate, but the text doesn't say at all that he defended himself against wrong accusations that were presented against him. So he gives no defense. And then rather instantly in the story, he is given a seat of prominence and authority, which is accompanied by taking an unbelieving bride and bringing her into the family. Now, who does that sound like? And just like Billy Mays, the old infomercial guy, there's more, right? And wait, there's more. What's interesting is that when Egypt has run out of bread, Pharaoh told, to the, told, to the, told the people to go to Joseph. Now, what's, what's worth knowing when you look at the chronology of when certain years are given, Joseph, uh, by, when he starts taking over this role, is about 30 years of age. He's about 30 years old when the people start coming to him for bread. And then Pharaoh says to the people, do whatever he tells you. But sadly, as we'll see next week, his own brothers, they're not going to recognize him. They're not going to recognize him. Interestingly, there's a story in John chapter 2 where Jesus is about to perform his first public miracle, where he turns water into wine. It says, on the third day, when a certain wedding had, wedding had run out of wine, someone there told the people to go see a son of Joseph. It literally says in John 2, go see a son of Joseph, who, by the way, is also about 30. And this person says to do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And when you read the story of Jesus turning the water into the wine, it literally says his brothers didn't recognize it. Now, they knew it was Jesus, but they didn't recognize what Jesus was doing, that the Savior of the world was here. They didn't see him for who he actually was. Just like Joseph's brothers are not going to see Joseph for who he actually is. And by the way, both the dreams that Joseph interprets and the Jesus miracle of turning water into wine are both categorized as third day events. Third day events. The people who had the dreams on the third day, Joseph said this is going to happen. And on the third day, Jesus turned the water into wine. What we see is that most people can spot a famine, but not everyone knows how to spot a savior. Now, also, the text doesn't say anything about this, but it's just worth knowing that in the ancient world, the bride, if you, if you were a woman marrying a man, you would typically take the God or the gods of your husband. So in the ancient world, a woman would legally be part of, would be, uh, become a part of her husband's family legally, which means that you would also take his family and his gods. 
Now, here we see that Joseph gets his children Hebrew, not Egyptian names. And it looks like here, uh, his unbelieving bride is invited into part of his family. Now, if you're not making that connection in the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Christ. Right? Who else follows this trajectory? Right? Well, it says this in Philippians chapter 2, the last thing we'll read. It says this, adopt the same attitude as, as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming a form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the story of Joseph is pointing us to the one who ultimately did all of these things for us in Jesus. Why we say all the time that scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And we see gospel whispers in the Joseph story of who Jesus is going to be. And by the way, Jesus was not forced or manipulated into doing any of these things. He gladly laid down his life. He gladly became saved, the slave to his own creation so that we might experience salvation through him. And in Christ, what you see is that God is giving himself to turn unbelievers, those who are far away from God, and they are inviting unbelievers into his family, which is what G Joseph does with his wife. In other words, Jesus' humiliation was turned into his exaltation. And so the question for us this morning, how should we view our own humiliation? Well, here's what this, point, this text is pointing us to, that only Jesus can turn your humiliation into exaltation. It's only Jesus, man, with your sin and with your shame and with your lies and with the, the mistakes that you've made, man, it's there. And there's nothing you can do to fix it. But there is someone who can. Uh, Tim Keller, who passed away earlier this year as a pastor and a theologian, he puts it this way. He talks about this idea that to be loved but not known is superficial. So we all want to be loved, but we're afraid that if people really know us, and they love us, but they don't really know us. We kind of know, like, if they really know who I was, they probably wouldn't like me. And so it feels good, but it's superficial. He also says to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. In other words, if people really knew us and then they rejected us, man, nobody wants to do that. That's why we have the Instagram filters on. It's why when we're in our community group and we, and we talk about how things are going in our week, we're not totally honest with how we're feeling because we want people to know where we messed up or the doubts that we're dealing with, Right? So, so, so to be known and not fully loved is our greatest fear. And yet, to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God, where he sees us for who we are, and he loves us right where we are. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. What we, what we say here at New City Church is that if you're in Jesus, you've got nothing to prove and no one to impress because Jesus proved it in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And if you're in Christ, God looks at you the same way he looks at Jesus, which is holy, without blemish, with worthy of entering into his kingdom. And so for Jesus, he literally came in the most humiliating way possible to rescue us out of our own humiliation. The gospel is that Jesus took on flesh. He lived a sinless life. He died the death we deserve to die. He triumphed over death three days later, overcoming the grave and sin to invite us into God's kingdom. That anyone who trusts and repents and follows him can experience God's grace and forgiveness in spite of anything that you have done in your life. 
The gospel is that Jesus takes our broken lives and he makes them into something beautiful. Our pits, our pains, our hangups, they are not wasted in the kingdom of God. And so what we read this morning in this Joseph story, we are meant to see also, by the way, that it wasn't Pharaoh that exalted Joseph. It was God. When you read his life, it's like clearly this was not Pharaoh like decided to be good. Like he was in God's providence. He led Joseph down a path to put him in a position to do something that he could never have done without God. Now, again, hear me. It doesn't mean that your life is going to be amazing. It doesn't mean that you're going to become vice president of the United States one day if you just hang in there. But it does mean that you have no idea, absolutely no idea, what God might want to do and will do in your life if you remain faithful to him. As I end, I told you uh, when I started the story of Matt Emmons about his humiliating defeats. What's interesting, though, is that's not, that's not the end of his story. In fact, after losing the gold medal in 2004, when he literally hit the bullseye on the wrong target, uh, he was sitting in the beer garden near the shooting range, completely devastated. After, again, one of the biggest blunders in Olympic history, I guess, fortunately for him, not a lot of people know about, you know, shooting and marksmanship, and so we just didn't hear about it. But in that field, I mean, it could not, you literally hit the bullseye of the wrong target. I mean, it could not be worse. And so he's there. I mean, he's devastated. He's embarrassed. And while he's sitting in the beer garden, there's a Czechoslovakian shooter by the name of Katarina Krukova, and her and her father approached him to sympathize and to share their condolences with him. And they, gave, they ended up giving him a, a four-leaf clover keychain to wish him luck in the future. Well, uh, fast forward to two years, and that encounter turned into more than a keychain as Matt and Katarina were married in 2004, and they now have four children together. In fact, later in an interview with USA Today, he said this, it'll be on the screen, had I not made that mistake, in other words, had I hit that bullseye like I was supposed to at the Olympics, maybe I retire from shooting. Maybe I don't marry Katie. Those failures, those mishaps, the things that I've learned in the process have, have made my life, my athletic career, so much richer, so much more fulfilling than anything I could have done had I won those so again, only Jesus can turn your humiliation into exaltation. Man, had Joseph not been sold into slavery and simply taken over his family as the next patriarch, it would have been awesome. Wouldn't it all have been what, was, what God wanted him to do? And so again, I'm not promising that your life's going to be amazing, that everything's going to go the way that you want it to go, but I am saying this, that God is faithful, he sympathizes with our weaknesses, and we have no idea what he might do to those who remain faithful to him. Your mistakes are not the end of your story. What you've said, what you've done is not, what's been done to you is not the end of your story. That Jesus can make that and take something beautiful if we just remain faithful and trust him, even when it seems like he's far away.